Welcome back to another episode of Diagnosing a Killer. I'm Kenna. And I'm Koel. gonna say this is like the 18th time we've started this episode. i know i don't know why the hellos just sounded so weird so weird hello hello, hello. i don't know oh <laughs> uh, she's already starting start <laughs> it's like your miley cyrus impersonation. Yeah. <laughs> you guys we have a doozy for you today mm-hmm. i have a doozy for you today because mm-hmm. you don't know who i'm doing Mm-mm. but Really quickly, give us the handles so I can get into this fucking case. You just want to get into it? I just want to get into it. All right. You can check us out at diagnosingakiller.com. There you will find links to resources and merch. You can follow us anywhere on social media at diagnosingakiller, other than X, which is at Killer Diagnosis. Email us, review us, rate us, all that good stuff. Check out our trailer. We actually just released a trailer (gasps) at two years in. We actually have a trailer. And I actually need to send that to Jason. First of all, I was just thinking that because I sent him the audio clips, but I didn't send him the trailer. Well, gotta send him that. Here we go. If you are one of the people, the lovely people that we had the pleasure of meeting at the True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival, listen to our most recent mental breakdown about it because your name is most definitely in there. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Ah. I decided this week to do a case that is from the UK. Okay. Because I recognized recently that we have a lot of UK listeners, Mm -hmm. and we really love you guys. So, I decided to bring a UK case. Okay. And that is the case of Harold Frederick Shipman, a.k.a. Dr. Death. Okay. Yes. Interesting topic. Dr. Death. (laughs) Dr. Death. (laughs) I'm not going to do the accent on purpose. If it it comes out, it comes out. But Yeah. Yes, so if you're in the UK, you obviously know who that is. If you don't, you're in for a, tr- a horrible treat. A horrible, <laughs> treat. a horrible treat. Content warning. This episode contains depictions of child neglect, substance abuse, manipulation of vulnerable people, spousal abuse, and suicide. If this episode is not for you, we encourage you to find another one of our episodes. Remember, your mental health is very important to us, and we love you. We love you. Bye. Bye. So yeah, a lot of stuff going on in this one. Wow, that is... That's a pretty hefty... There's a lot to unpack here. Lots to unpack. Okay. All right. We're going to get into it. hefty content warning. So, Harold Frederick Shipman Jr. was born on January 14th, 1946 in Nottingham, England. Capricorn. To Harold Frederick Shipman Sr. and Vera Britton, I think is how you say her last name. Vera. Yes, a cute name. Or Vera. Vera, maybe. So, Harold was born on the Bestwood Estate, which is a council estate Essentially, from what I gathered, it meant, like, public housing. Okay. But if I'm not mistaken, it meant, like, maybe, like, an apartment building or, like, a condo complex. Mm -hmm. Let me know. Email us. Harold was the second of three children, his siblings being older sister Pauline and younger brother Clive. Clive. I like the name Clive. Growing up, Harold wanted to have his own identity, so he would frequently go by nicknames like Fred or Freddy because of his middle name. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to call him Harold because, you know, I never give them their nicknames. Right. His father, Harold Sr., worked as a lorry driver or a truck driver, while his mom, Vera, was a stay-at-home mom. Although Harold was known as being the favorite child of Vera, she was also known as being very domineering and instilling a sense of superiority in all of her children, especially Harold. Yeah. Having this negative influence from his mother caused a strain on all of Harold's outside relationships growing up, 
and caused him to not be able to keep any sort of friendship. So he was just, like, so overwhelmed by, or I guess, like, overburdened with this thought that, like, he, what, couldn't connect with people? He, well, she was essentially saying, like, it's it's definitely not a bad thing to instill a sense of pride in your children or right. confidence, but she was essentially trying to make them, like, act arrogant. Right. So he exactly. wasn't able to keep friendships because he had to, like, act act like this big boastful, like... He was the best. Better than you guys. Yeah. Exactly. So it really kept it... But he, that's what he knew from home. Yeah. But his friends were, like, no one wanted to hang out with him. Right. Because he was, like, kind of an asshole, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, like, yeah. So she overburdened him with this sense, of, like, grandiose sense of self. Yeah, potentially. exactly. Okay. So this sense of entitlement did not only affect the kids' relationships, however, and a neighbor was noted as saying once, quote... Vera was friendly enough, but she really did see her family as superior to the rest of us. Hmm. Not only that, you could tell Harold was her favorite, the one she saw as the most promising of her three children, end quote. Ooh. So it wasn't okay. even, like, obvious in the household. It was obvious to, like, other people. Yeah, that's definitely a spin on a middle middle child, though, because you usually don't hear that about a middle child. Right, exactly. <laughs> No offense to all the middle children out there, but, <laughs> you know, it's usually, again, we've said it before, it's like the baby gets the attention because they're the yeah. baby. The eldest gets the attention because they're, they're the eldest, and the middle always feels like they have to... What's that saying? Like, um, squeaky wheel gets the grease? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But in, in this case, he's hyper-focused on, which is interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. So Vera was also known as telling Harold who he could and could not hang out with. Ew. And she wanted to make sure that he stood out from the other boys his age. Don't play tennis. Oh, what she, I was like, don't, don't play a team don't, sport. Don't play a team, team sport. Yeah. Play tennis. She would dress him up in formal attire for school while the other boys were wearing much more casual clothing. Like a little bow tie and stuff? Yeah, she's like, you're going to look the best. The best. Well, then I'm sure that they wanted the image that they were affluent as well. Mm -hmm. As a student, Harold was above average in his studies in his early years, but seemed to slip to the lower part of the class average when he reached high school. Mm. Harold would play rugby in youth leagues growing up and would pass his 11 plus in 1957 at age nine. I didn't know what that was, because we're in the U.S., <laughs> but for the people that aren't from the U.K., this is a standardized exam given to children when they reach their last year of grade school, mm. and passing the exam allows them to enter the secondary school. Okay. So it's like a final final, <laughs> like a secondary like a tax being... test or a star test. Or okay. Yeah. Like um, middle school, secondary. Okay. Because I was at age nine when he passed it. Mm -hmm. After completion of the exam, Harold would move to High Pavement Grammar School, Nottingham, and would remain there until 1964. So, again, this is, like, uh, seven years that he's there. Mm -hmm. While here, Harold would take to long-distance running and continue rugby, and during his final year of school, he would become a vice-captain of the athletics team. Oh! He's just trying to get up there, That's but he's it. probably mad that he was vice-captain and yeah. not captain. <laughs> <laughs> during this time, Harold's ideations of him being better than his peers continued, and he was still having a hard time maintaining his friendships. Harold's mother, Vera, had gotten sick with lung cancer while he was attending this school, oh, which no. also kept him away from his peers often. Yeah, I thought that was, like, heart-wrenching for him. Absolutely. Because that's, like, that's his, like biggest, his best friend. Exactly. And his big, yeah, his biggest supporter and everything. Biggest ally, yeah. Vera was sick for many months, Harold actually tending to her care at all times, like, he took it upon mm -hmm. himself. Harold would go quickly home every day after school, make her a cup of tea, and just talk with her. Vera would make sure to let Harold know that she was counting the minutes that he was gone. So I don't know if that was in, like, a sweet, endearing way. Like, oh, honey, you make me so happy being here for You've you. You've been gone 52 minutes. minutes. Gone. <laughs> or she's like, I'm fucking counting the minutes, motherfucker. Yeah. It's been 43 back. minutes and you were supposed to be here three <laughs> minutes ago. <laughs> three minutes ago. <laughs> now, during this time, the painkillers that Vera had been on, had been taking, were no longer serving her well. Oh, gosh. 
And now, Vera was being assisted by her family physician, who was now giving her morphine for the pain. Harold noted that he was fascinated by how the morphine seemed to take away his mother's pain, like, almost instantly. Oh, no. He was like, oh, that's... Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Hmm. Unfortunately, Vera's cancer was terminal, and after losing most of her body weight over a few months of treatment, she would die on June 21st, 1963, when Harold was just 17. Just a few months she was dealing with that? That's so sad. Yeah. A few months of treatment. Of though. treatment. Yeah. yeah. That's what I mean. It's like, really diagnosed really late. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I know. That's 17. Awful. That's 17. And that's like, again, your fucking person. Yeah. Like the only person that you feel like you can turn to. Mm-hmm. After Vera's death, Harold was obviously devastated as his mother was the only person he had a good relationship with at this point. Vera's passing lit a spark under Harold's butt to go to medical school, where he vowed that he would do something to help in the future, which I think is really admirable, honestly, mm-hmm. at, this, at this point in his life. <laughs> at this point. <laughs> Let's wait. Yeah. Harold would attempt to apply for Leeds University Medical School, where he would actually fail his entrance exam the first time. He would eventually pass it, however, and two years after his mother passed away, Harold would get his degree and go on to join the Leeds University Hospital Internship. That's, so what, he's like 19? Yeah. Um, wow. He said yeah. 17 when he, yeah, and yeah. Two, within two years. But that's just his de- his associates to get to the internship, I'm pretty sure. Right. Or whatever kind of degree you need. Now he but has still, to like, go through, like, like, the residency. That's pretty, you know, pretty impressive that that's something that he immediately knew he wanted to do. And Absolutely. And then within two years, like, before he just even turned did 20. It. Just fucking did it. Yeah. Most of his fellow students and teachers had a hard time remembering who Harold was, and it wasn't because of his grades. The people who did remember him noted his arrogant attitude, stating, quote, It was as if he tolerated us. If someone told a joke, he would smile patiently, but Fred never wanted to join in. Again, his nickname's Fred. Right. <laughs> quote, It seems funny, because I later heard he'd been a good athlete, so you'd have thought he'd be more of a team player. End Ooh, quote. okay. <laughs> this guy's clever. Yeah. <laughs> Most of his classmates, however, thought of Harold as a loner of sorts. Even so, Harold was known to have been more social in med school than in high school, hmm. as his mother was no longer around to dictate who he talked to. Makes sense. Another former teacher from high school would state about Harold, quote, I don't think he ever had a girlfriend. In fact, he took his older sister to school dances. They made a strange couple, but then he was a bit strange. A pretentious lad, end quote. A pretentious lad. <laughs> I had to say it like that. I'm so sorry. Pretentious we love lad. Europe, honestly. Like, we love you guys. So we're not making fun to be rude. And I know that y'all do fucking American accents over there, too, okay? <laughs> it's just uh, all in good fun. But yeah, fun. a pretentious lad. So he brought his sister to school dances. Mm-hmm. That's he probably wasn't allowed to talk to girls. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I think I've definitely known at least one or two people that I went to middle school or high school with that did that too. Yeah. They would take their cousin or something, you know? Well, it's, someone, no one wants to show up without a date, right? No one like, wants to show up without a date. And not only that, but like if you can show like your cousin, you know, your school or something. You yeah, know, that's, that's fun. It's fun. And, you know, it's just, yeah. It's like, whatever. It's just a dance. It's not like prom or something. Yeah. You know? They're not kissing. Or were they? <laughs> Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> the same year that he got the internship, Harold would meet a 16-year-old girl by the name of Primrose May Oxtoby. I love the name Primrose. Primrose is so cute. Her background was similar to Harold's, with her mother restricting who she talked to and controlling most of her daily activities. Hmm. Just like Harold, Primrose was, was very excited to finally have a partner to share life with. Hmm. The two did not wait long and would quickly get married within a year. Oh, wow. And with Primrose being five months pregnant... <gasps> On November 5th, 1966, they would wed. Wow. Harold would continue to study medicine at the Leeds School of Medicine, University of Leeds, and would graduate in 1970. 
Four years later, in 1974, Harold was now a father of two and took his first position as a general practitioner at the Abram Ormered Medical Center in Tod- Todd Morden, Yorkshire. Sorry. Wow, that, that was a mouthful. lot. <laughs> I think uh, just being American, we also don't have a mouth for that. You yeah. Know? <laughs> Doesn't sound right. Doesn't sound right. In this new setting and in a position of power, Harold seemed to thrive. He became outgoing, personable, and a respected member of the community in the eyes of first responders and patients alike. Okay, Gary Ridgway. We see you. Yeah, right. However, his coworkers were not fooled by his newfound politeness and hero attitude. They would comment that he was often rude for no reason and made them feel stupid. Hmm. In fact, Harold would say to anyone that he didn't like that they were stupid. He would just call you stupid. Jeez. Again, has to be, like, the bad boss or whatever. Ha- yeah. But that's, you know, and Cliss says this often, that it's not about how much you know. It's about understanding. Yeah. And, sure, he can know everything in the world. But if he doesn't have a full understanding, especially of, like, how to participate and apply that knowledge. Yeah. Then it's, then then it's useless. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. On top of this, Harold was noted as being confrontational and combative very often even leading to, to him belittling people and embarrassing them, which mm-hmm. I can't fucking stand that shit. More experienced doctors would even allow him to do things his way in order to avoid arguing with him. <gasps> they were like, oh, you know no. what? <laughs> this kid <laughs> is not worth it. Just fucking do it. If a patient dies, it's your fucking fault. I stopped being friends with people like that. Yeah, just <laughs> keep in mind, like, he's not even 30 uh, yet at this point. I would literally just be like, oh, good gosh, yeah. I Just to avoid an entire complication, I'm just going to allow this person to do whatever. I have avoided friendships to avoid confrontations. I'm like, you know what? Yeah. You do you, I'll do me. I'm not fucking See, I'm, I'm, not I'm that way now. Yeah. For a long time, I put up with a lot of crap. Oh, no, same. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, they, like, definitely didn't want to argue with him. They're like, it's not worth my time. <laughs> In fact, his senior partner saw him as hardworking, who contributed significantly by providing up-to-date info and even admiring his work ethic, even though he was recently out of med school. So he has his immediate superiors that are like, he's just going to do whatever the fuck he wants. Yeah. Allowing him to sh- have that a- ability to showcase his talent. space, yeah. And he's, I mean, he's not dumb. He's a smart dude. Yeah. Now the people above them are, like, getting when They're like, dang, this guy knows what the hell he's doing. Yeah. Know? All of a sudden, it seems, Harold's hardworking mentality and near-perfect record came to a halt when he began experiencing frequent blackouts. What? His partners were obviously concerned, and when asked about why he thought this might be going on... He explained to them that he had actually been recently diagnosed with epilepsy. Hmm. A diagnosis that was false, although his coworkers were none the wiser and had no choice but to believe him. What? The year after Harold began working at the practice, receptionist Marjorie Walker came across some disturbing entries in a narcotics ledger that Harold had access to. Oh my gosh. Okay, I'm getting like, uh, <laughs> I'm getting a little heebie. What is happening? The records had indicated that Harold had prescribed large and frequent amounts of pethidine to several different patients. So for those that don't know, pethidine is an opioid pain reliever that was frequently prescribed for different conditions, but has since become very uncommon because it's really harmful. Mm. On top of this, Harold had been prescribing the same drug on behalf of the company, which was not extremely weird. However, the amounts in which he was prescribing were oddly large. Okay. Sounds like Grant Amato. Like Grant Amato or Chris and Gilbert? Yeah. Oh, Chris and Gilbert for sure. For sure. But yeah, even Grant Amato got pinched for that. Yeah. For, oh, they would be like, oh, okay, great. There's like three vials of whatever this is, but it's split between three people. And yeah. It's like a whole vial. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Following this discovery, an investigation was opened by the practice, and to the surprise of the investigators, none of the patients that were prescribed the large amount of drugs ever received them. What? 
Okay, 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 okay. Where is this going? <laughs> Dr. John Darce was also part of this investigation as a witness or an assistant. I wasn't sure which. One of their partners, Dr. Michael Grieve, recalled during a staff meeting, quote, We were sat round with Fred sitting on one side, and up comes John on the opposite and says, Now, young Fred, can you explain this? And he puts before him evidence that he has been glean- gleaning, showing that young Fred had been prescribing pethidine to patients and they never received the pethidine. And in fact, the pethidine had found its way into Fred's very own veins. End quote. So he was shooting this shit up, and oh that's why he was God. blacking out. He was like, oh, I have I epilepsy. epilepsy. I have yeah. epilepsy, sorry. It's not funny that he's, like, clearly abusing drugs. That's no. That's we're laughing. No. But, yeah, but yeah it's, it's just ridiculous. It's like, it's like, what? The substance use isn't funny, but the e- explanation. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the the fact that he was taking his own notes about it and, well, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, and that's also something that we'll see. It's like, this is definitely, like, an arrogant man, of course, because he was raised to be that way, but he thinks that he can just explain away, like, a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it obviously doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Harold would immediately beg for a second chance upon his partners realizing this, once he realized that his career was on the line. Career, sorry, it was a career. (laughs) His career. When he was denied a second chance, his demeanor changed, and he became enraged and stormed out. During this tantrum, he would throw a medical bag on the ground and threaten to resign. (laughs) I'm (laughs) out of here. We're firing you, bro. You can't fire me, I quit. His partners were completely caught off guard at his behavior, as they had never seen him do anything like this in his past. Well, he's been abusing drugs, too. Yeah. <laughs> Shortly after this fit of anger, Harold's wife, Primrose, stormed into the room where his coworkers were discussing the best way to fire him. <laughs> this sounds like a, like a skit, like yeah. a play. She <laughs> screamed. Fire him. <laughs> she screamed at the men in the room, stating, quote, you'll have to force him out, end quote. It's like, that's the plan. Sounds so dramatic. <laughs> In response to this, Harold was forced out of the practice and into a drug rehab center in 1975. <laughs> They're like, yeah, we're going to force him yeah, to go get clean. Go what the get fuck? Better. He stole from us and he's abusing drugs. Yeah, like, and he blamed it on having epilepsy. Yeah, seriously. Two years later in 1977, Harold was actually convicted of drug offenses, prescription fraud, and forgery and was fined a total of 600 pounds. Oh, okay. No jail time? No. Somehow his license was not revoked, his license to practice. What? And Harold was able to gain employment as a general practitioner at Donnybrook Medical Center in Hyde, Greater Manchester, the same year. Hmm. Manchester. Manchester. Why was that not taken away? I don't know. Maybe they have different rules. He's using his prescription pad to prescribe drugs to people that are not getting them. This is also the 70s. That's true. (laughs) When, like, every doctor was on cocaine. They were, like, prescribing cocaine. (laughs) They were prescribing. No, that's that old. Oh. In the 70s? Well, maybe they were. I I think I, I feel like I read somewhere, or maybe it was The Pacific, the show that I watched. I don't remember. But they were prescribing... Like, pilots and stuff for the Vietnam War, they were prescribing them, like, heroin and shit so that they'd sleep on the long trip, like, to Vietnam. Yeah. And then, you know, not only that, but they wouldn't feel anxious or anything like that jumping yeah. out of a fucking plane. That's... I can't I even imagine. Ugh. That's wild. So, about this... So, again, he moved to a new, a new practice. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Jeffrey Moisey of this center would state about Harold, quote, His approach was that, I have had this problem, this conviction for abuse of pethidine, I have undergone treatment. I am now clean. All I can ask you to do is trust me on that issue and to watch me, end mm. quote. Yeah. So that's what he was like. That's what he said. Well, you know, I mean, again, substance use can be treated. Absolutely. Yeah. Once again, Harold fell into the persona of delicate, hardworking, 
and community center doctor and was able to gain the respect of his colleagues. Mm. Some people that worked under him had some things to say about his sarcasm and verbally abusive nature, but he was really good at covering up his rudeness and making people feel like they were overreacting. Hmm. He was like a gaslighter. Yeah. However, there were no signs of drug abuse, blackouts, or theft at all, so most of it went unnoticed, like all of his kind of odd behavior, like sarcasm and all that yeah. stuff. Harold would continue working as a GP in Hyde all throughout the 1980s, and in 1983, he was interviewed in an addition, in an addition of the Granada TV Current Affairs documentary titled World in Action, hmm. in which he spoke about how the mentally ill should be treated in the community. He became highly respected, not only in the medical field, but in the mentally health, mental health community as well. Mm. Harold would continue his work for another 15 years until the local undertaker called Alan Massey began noticing a strange pattern in his patients. He took note of the fact that Harold's patients were dying at an alarmingly fast rate, but also their bodies had many similarities to each other when he was called to get them. So the Undertaker's patients or Harold's patients? Harold's patients. Okay. <laughs> the Undertaker noticed a strange pattern in Harold's, Harold's patients. patients. <laughs> okay, because yes. like in his patients, it's like, well, there's your problem right there. You got an Undertaker working on some patients. Patients, yes. <laughs> so again, Alan Massey is the name of the Undertaker. He stated about this observation of the patterns, quote, anybody can die in a chair, but there's no set pattern. And Dr. Shipman's always seem to be the same or very similar. Could be sat in a chair, could be laid on the seat, but I would say 90% was always fully clothed. There was never anything in the house that I saw that indicated the person had been ill. It just seems the person, where they were, had died. There was something that didn't quite fit, end quote. That is weird, isn't it? It's just everyone that he comes to take is it's sit just, up upright in a chair, fully clothed. Yeah. Like they just died like they're right fine. there. Yeah. There's no, it doesn't appear to be any suffering or long-term illness yeah. or no blood attempt or... to get to a bathroom yeah. or, a, you know, or the outside phone, or, or yeah. the phone. Exactly. Interesting. Al- yeah. Alan's suspicions only grew to the point that he felt he needed to confront Harold regarding his deceased patients. Alan stated about this encounter, quote, I asked him if there was any cause for concern and he just said, no, there isn't. He showed me his certificate book that he issues death certificates in, the cause of death in, and his remarks were, Nothing to worry about. You've nothing to worry about, and anybody who wants to inspect his book can do. End quote. Well, I mean, we all know how Harold is with his books. Yeah. That he's like, oh, no, what is it? Uh, fool, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on... No, the other way around. Yeah, well, that's what <laughs> it is. I'm horrible it's like, at those, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> that's what it is. It's like, Harold is now remembering that he got in trouble for writing things down and right. getting it oh, now he's writing things down on purpose, on purpose. as an alibi or like exactly. to cover his ass right exactly pendulum swings the other way yes alan did not feel the need to check harold's logs however as harold's calm and collective response seemed good enough for the undertaker alan's daughter debbie brambroth also a funeral director was not as easily fooled debbie would partner up with dr susan booth a doctor from a nearby practice and the two of them would decide to go look further into harold Dr. Booth had taken it upon herself to go to the funeral director's home to examine a new body, as this was not unusual due to the British law that requires a doctor from an unrelated practice to co-sign forms from the first doctor. Okay. Doctors in the UK are paid a fee for this, jokingly referred to as, quote, cash for ash, end quote. <laughs> I just had to pepper that in there. It was <laughs> kind of cute. <laughs> Debbie, so again, the daughter of the undertaker, had shared with Dr. Booth that she was concerned about the amount of patients that Harold was losing. Susan Booth would state about this conversation, quote, 
She was concerned about the number of deaths Dr. Shipman's patients that they'd attended recently. She was also puzzled by the way in which the patients were found. They were mostly female, living on their own, found dead, sitting in a chair, fully dressed, not in their night clothes, lying ill in bed, end quote. Right. Dr. Booth would bring this to the attention of her colleagues and mention this to Linda Reynolds of the Brooks Surgery in Hyde. Linda, in turn, expressed concerns to the coroner of the South Manchester district about the high death rate among Harold's patients. So now it's like like telephone, right? Yeah, Everyone's telling everyone. everyone. Specifically, she was concerned about the high amounts of cremation forms for elderly women that he needed to sign off on. Unfortunately, this was mere speculation at this time, and police did not have any reason to keep this investigation open. Yeah, there's no real evidence. They would close the case on April 17th, 1998. Well, Harold wasn't writing it down, so of course they have no evidence. Yeah. You know, that's, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Actually, this is funny that you say that, because what police did not know at the time was that Harold had rewritten patients' records after he killed them to make their deaths appear harmless. What? So he would... I'll get into it more, but he would kill someone and then go back into their records and rewrite, like, the past, like, couple of months so that it mm-hmm. looked like they were ill when they weren't. So I think we assume at this point that Harold's killing these people. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Yeah, obviously. The, the title of the He's episode. The the, yeah. <laughs> After the investigation was closed, Harold would go on to kill three more people. On June 24th, 1998, 81-year-old former Hyde mayor Kathleen Grundy <gasps> was found dead in her home. Kathleen's death came as a shock to the whole community, but especially to her family and friends who knew her as an active, healthy person. Yeah. She was known to have endless energy and constantly was helping local charities. And it was not until she failed to show up at the Age Concern Club that people noticed she was missing. Age Concern Club? It's like a charity. A local oh, okay. charity. Here, she would help serve meals to elderly pensioners, and she was known for being extremely punctual and reliable. So when she did not show up, her friends immediately knew something was wrong. Oh my gosh, that's gotta be such a scary feeling to go through. Like, knowing, like, your friend, like, is never not showing up, and if they do, they call, like, and that's not happening, you're like, there's something wrong. Yeah. Her friends went to her house to check up on her and found her lying on her couch, fully dressed and deceased. Oh my gosh. The friends immediately called her GP, Dr. Harold Shipman. Hmm? Harold stated that he had visited the home a few hours prior and was the last person to see her alive. However, he claimed that he was just there to take some blood samples for studies on aging, and although he claimed she was alive when he left, he would be the one to later pronounce her dead, and then phone her daughter, Angela Woodruff. So now he says that he's doing a research on blood samples on a, re- a research project right. on aging. Well, he, he probably blood samples. has to explain away maybe the puncture mark on her yeah, arm. Exactly. Yeah. So again, Angela Woodruff is the daughter of Kathleen. Mm-hmm. When asked if he could do an examination of her mother, Harold told Angela that she died of old age and a post-mortem exam was unnecessary because he had been with her shortly before her death. She was like 81. Unless like, okay. she agrees to an autopsy. Right. <laughs> 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 yes. Smashing. <laughs> Smashing. <sighs> this is not funny. Following Kathleen's burial, Angela returned home to be met with a troubling phone call from solicitors. A solicitor in the UK does not mean what it does in the US. Mm. A solicitor is a qualified legal professional who provides specialist legal advice on different areas of law and is responsible for representing and defending a client's legal interests. Okay. That's from the University of Law, just to put my source in there. So like a court-appointed attorney kind of thing? Kind of, yeah. It's like a more of a a right than a... 
uh, an easily accessible right versus you I think have so. to be a defendant. Well, Angela was also a solicitor herself, so I think oh, that's right. another reason why her colleague called her. Oh, okay. But she would be concerned when her colleague Brian informed her that a will had been made allegedly by Kathleen. What? Brian went on to explain that he had reason to believe that Kathleen may not have been the one to write up this will, and it may have been a fake. The will stated that Kathleen was not interested in giving any of her money or assets to Angela or her children, and instead left all of it, about 386,000 pounds, to Harold Shipman. Bullshit. Like, like come right. on, Monica Melissa Patterson. Yeah, right. Chill. He's not writing it down, but he sure is creating a, lot, a big paper trail. Yeah, and this, just to get everyone the conversion rate, it would be the equivalent to nearly $500,000 in the U.S. Mm. That's the a funny, lot of money. Yeah, it is. The funny thing was, Angela immediately knew that this was fake, considering her own firm had the original copy of Kathleen's will, LOL. which she had written in 1986. I was there. Her was suspicions there became fact when Angela got a hold of this new will mm-hmm. and noted that it was badly typed and poorly worded. <laughs> she would state about this, quote, My mother was a meticulously tidy person. The thought of her signing a document which is so badly typed didn't make any sense. Yeah. The signature looked strange. It looked too big. The concept of mom signing a document, leaving everything to her doctor, was unbelievable. It wasn't a case of, look, she's not left me anything in her will, end quote. So yeah, she's like, this just, guy's dumb as fuck. Yeah, like, it's I, like, I done did leave everything to <laughs> Mr. Harold Shipman because he been a good doctor and... Yeah, he's the best. He's the best. Just a bunch of run-on sentences. He's the best. Yeah, and, and, and... <laughs> Initially, Andrea actually thought that Harold was being framed for the murder of her mother. What? But with further investigation, she realized the truth. Harold had murdered her mother for money. Ugh. That's so awful. That's awful. But, like, why? How is anybody's life worth money? Worth any money. Seriously. She would immediately go to local police where the case reached Inspector Superintendent Bernard Postles. Bernard looked over the evidence that Angela had gathered and almost immediately knew it was accurate. He would state about the forged will, quote, You only have to look at it once and you start thinking it's like something off a John Bull printing press. You don't have to have 20 years of detective to know it's fake. Yeah. Maybe he thought he was being clever. An old lady, nobody around her. Look at it. It's a bit tacky. But everyone knew she was sharp as a tack. Maybe it was his arrogance, end yeah. quote. Ooh, his arrogance. Again, yeah. man, with the quips of these people. The, I know, they're nice. <laughs> they're like, clever. British people are uh, quick. I just I love the, the verbiage. Detective Postles now knew what he had feared. Dr. Shipman had a strong motive. Meanwhile, Kathleen's body was exhumed at the request of the coroner, and investigators were able to detect traces of diamorphine, which is heroin. Mm. Exhuming a body is not very common, but not a very common occurrence for any British police force, and especially during this time. In fact, up until this point, the Greater Manchester Police Department had not yet experienced this, with Detective Postles stating, quote, we did not have one officer who had ever taken part in an exhumation. We asked the National Crime Squad for advice. Oh, wow. End quote. Yeah, isn't that crazy that, like, no, like, they had been so long since they had exhumed a body that nobody on the force Knew remaining had done it before. That's incredible. When questioned about this, Harold claimed that Kathleen was a secret addict and had even shown them notes he had written down about encounters with her addiction. <laughs> yeah, after the fact. Yeah. He's like, oh, this looks like I'm sorry, here in my notebook. This is all the evidence you need. Yeah. However, when police looked further into his computer records, they realized that the notes had been taken after Kathleen's death, because they can look at that shit. What an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> what an idiot. <laughs> my face is all scrunched. What an idiot. 
A few months later, in August of 1998, a taxi driver by the name of John Shaw came forward to police and told them that he believed that Harold had murdered 21 of his elderly patients. His name wasn't Rick Shaw? No, John Shaw. Oh, well, he's a taxi driver, so I just assumed. Is that from Taxi Driver? No, it's in reference to a rickshaw, which is like a like a person pulling a wagon. That's called a oh, rickshaw. That's funny. No? Uh, yeah. Okay. Right over my head. Okay. So again, he said that he believes that Harold had killed 21 people, and he said he believed this because he had driven many of these people to the hospital, and they were in seemingly good health. That is, until they interacted with Harold. The team of investigators working the case would become painfully familiar with the exhumation process throughout this whole thing. Out of the 15 people Harold was thought to have killed, nine of them were buried and six were cremated. Police took hair and tissue samples from Kathleen's exhumation and would take it upon themselves to sneakily do a search of the doctor's office and Harold's house. They did, like, they were at the office when he was home, and then they were at his home when he was at the office. (laughs) They made sure to get the warrant without creating a fuss and would search the office before Harold arrived so he did not have time to change any setting or hide any evidence. Mm -hmm. Once Harold arrived at the office, his reaction to officers searching the place was not concerned and, in fact, was rather arrogant as the officers read the search warrant to him. Still that word. That was like, oh, yeah, go for it. Just look at everything. I don't have anything to hide and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Featured in Vogue, Forbes, and more, Alariz has the most beautiful and expertly crafted diamond jewelry for that special someone in your life. From engagement rings, pendants, and earrings, you're sure to find the perfect gift that expresses exactly how you feel. Click the link in the show notes to receive $10 off all orders plus free shipping. Alariz, fitting all your jewelry needs from A to Z. Out of all things collected from the office, perhaps the most damning piece of evidence was the typewriter that Harold used to type up the fake will of Kathleen's. LOL. He's just not very smart. It's like, it literally says right here, like, it's got an imprint on the back that says Kathleen's last will and testament. Doctor. But you're fucking dumb. (laughs) Do you think that, again, it's that knowledge, but not understanding, right? Yeah. Like, he thinks all of his knowledge makes him that smart. Makes him smart. Yeah. But he's not, he's not. He's not. That sounded like the same, he's not. He's not. He's not. He's not. He's not. He's not. not. Which one's which, listeners? Um, Do you think that because Kathleen was the mayor, that's probably why they looked into it? Or do you think that he he would have continued to get away with this if he hadn't chosen someone that was a bigger target? I think that might be part of it, but I also think that the daughter was, like, so gung-ho about, like, no, like, we need to fucking do something about this, like, and she was, she had that legal background. Mm -hmm. I think that was another thing that kind of kick-started it. Good on you, Angela. Yeah, absolutely. When questioned about this, Harold came up with a hard-to-believe story about how Kathleen borrowed his typewriter from time to time. Like, they're like, why does this typewriter match the one that wrote this will? And he's like, well, she just borrowed my typewriter. You didn't think to mention that She came this? over just to type up her last will and testament. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but she didn't give it to her daughter. She gave it to me, her doctor. Directly to me. Who just so happened to be the beneficiary. Yeah. It's just, obviously, what else yeah. would it be? Duh. Beyond a reasonable doubt? I don't think I don't so. Think so. <laughs> so police did not ever believe this, of course. And forensic investigations were used to determine it was indeed the typewriter used to write the will, as well as other fake documents. Mm-hmm. The search of Harold's house revealed medical records, some unusual jewelry, and a pigsty of a living area. What was the jewelry? Oh, no, I think it was, like, jewelry that, like, obviously wasn't his. It's, like, women's? Yeah. 
Police were shocked to see that a doctor was living in filth and trash. Because that's not... I mean, they have a very... They have to have a very clean space, like workspace. Yeah, I don't know why I'm imagining Charlie Day in my head. You know, just like... Yeah. Total <laughs> conspiracy theory, you know. <laughs> Pointing to this thing. Sure. <laughs> Meanwhile, toxicologist Julie Evans sent in her report on the cause of Kathleen's death, stating that she had a fatal amount of morphine in her system. Oh, my God. There's that morphine. However, she also noted that Kathleen's death occurred within three hours of the overdose. Detective Postles remembers thinking that it was weird that Harold could have used, would have used morphine as a means of death, as he would have known that morphine stays in the body tissue for dozens of years. So he thought he was going to get away with it. Of course. Postles said about this, quote, I was surprised. I anticipated that I would have had difficulty if he gave them something in a way of poison lost in background substance. It was an unexpected bonus once I had checked that Kathleen Grundy did not take it herself. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, apparently morphine stays in the body tissue for fucking years and years and years, even after death. That's interesting. And being a doctor, Harold would know that. He should know that. Well, I wonder if that he put in this fake will, I want to be cremated when I'm dead, you know? (laughs) Like, oh, okay. Yeah, we'll do that. That lady voice that you did was funny. (laughs) I want to be cremated. Can I be cremated? Same. (laughs) with other speculations arising detectives wanted to look further into the case a case which seemed to not have just one victim out of the 15 thought victims the ones who had been cremated had all died following a house call by harold when talking to the families detectives noted that harold would try to urge them to cremate their loved ones and stressed that no further investigation into their deaths were necessary and he would explain away what happened but, like, how is that his call? Like, your job's done. They're dead. Yeah. You're a doctor. You fix people for a living. Yeah. So what is it any of your business It's like, my professional opinion. My yeah. professional opinion, you need to be, they need to be cremated. Yeah. They need to be cremated. Oh, that's my professional opinion. Yeah. And that's probably exactly how he sounds. <laughs> Except they probably sound like this. <laughs> they should be cremated. Sorry. It's like forced. <laughs> I'm done. Okay. Sorry, y'all. We're gonna we're gonna stop bantering now. <laughs> we said at the beginning of this, let's not banter too let's much. Let's not banter too much. Although some families were surprised to hear of the illnesses their loved ones seemingly had, they did not really question Harold when he told them. After all, he was the family doctor. They were under a lot of stress, and that was something that Harold took advantage of. Yeah. In the rare case that Harold was questioned by the family, he had the notes written down to show them of the alleged illnesses that led to the deaths. It would later be found out that these notes were all edited within hours of each patient's death. <gasps> It's disgusting. Why wouldn't he do that, like, beforehand? Why does he have to change them all after? Well, what if they don't die? Then all these records that, like, sound like they were dying, and then they... It's a miracle! He could have had a lot of money out of that. He (laughs) He should have cured them. He could have been one of those, like, snake oil tents with, like, the... very true. You know? You are healed. (laughs) In the specific case of Kathleen, Harold would stick to his story that she was a drug user and she overdosed. On top of this, Harold would consider himself an avid computer user, although he hated the idea of new technology when it first came out. You're an avid computer user, but you didn't know that they hold records? Okay, BTK. Needing to be superior, though, he would quickly learn how to utilize the programs offered on the computer and thought he knew everything about the device. What he failed to realize was that the hard drive on his computer kept a record of every change he made to a patient file, and the investigators had access to that information. (laughs) Harold would be arrested on September 7th, 1988, and taken in for questioning. Could you imagine that feeling? I mean, because we all, well, I mean, I did. At one point, it was like, I could totally 
just use this computer and do whatever and blah, blah, blah. And yeah. Like, there's no paper trail. Mm-hmm. But no, there always is. There always is. There always has been. Always has been. Isn't that weird? It's wild. And I bet that he, like, was trying to just explain it away in his own mind. Like, oh, well, Dave, that's new technology. How am I supposed to know about that? It's <laughs> this new. newfangled thing. Yeah. <laughs> so what? I googled cyanide. Mm. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> how to write a will. <laughs> will templates yeah (laughs) a detective would interview harold around this time and i'll read the transcript now officer this is all in quotes quote i'll just remind you of the date of this lady's death 11th may 98 after three o'clock that afternoon you have endorsed the computer with the date of first october 97 which is 10 months prior chest pains harold i have no recollection of me putting that on that on the machine officer it's your passcode it's your name Harold, it doesn't alter the fact that I can't remember doing it. Officer, you attended the house at three o'clock. That's when you murdered this lady. You went back to the surgery and immediately started altering this lady's medical records. You tell me why you needed to do that. Harold, there's no answer. Like, fuck off, dude. I have epilepsy. Yeah, I accidentally wrote, rewrote all these medical records because I was having blackouts. Yeah, I was having blackouts. In a separate recorded interview, Detective Constable Marie Staninsky questioned Harold about a different death, that of 73-year-old Winifred Miller. Officer, quote, The levels were such that this woman actually died from toxicity of morphine, not as you wrongly diagnosed. In plain speaking, you murdered her. One feature of these statements from the family was that they couldn't believe their own mother had chest pains, angina, and hadn't been informed. Harold, by... by whom? Officer, by her... Harold, by her, thank you. Officer, they also found it hard to believe because she didn't have a history of chest complaints and heart disease and angina, did she, doctor? Harold, if it's written on the records, then she had the history and therefore, officer, the simple truth is you fabricated a history to cover what you've done. You've murdered her and you make up a history of angina and chest pain so that you could issue a death certificate and placate this poor woman's family, didn't you? Harold, no. Officer, We've got a statement from a detective sergeant, John Ashley, who works in the field of computers. He has made a thorough examination of your computer, doctor, and the medical records contained on it. What he's found is that there are a number of entries that have been incorrectly placed on this record to falsely mislead and to indicate this woman woman had a history of angina and chest pains. What have you got to say about that, doctor? Harold, nothing. Like, (sighs) I can't stand that. Sorry, that was a long transcript, but I can't stand when it's like, I've been caught. yeah i'm pouting now yeah i I can't fucking admit what i did i can't take accountability for what i fucking did i'm just gonna make you look like the idiot for questioning me and i'm just gonna say nothing right because then yeah if i say nothing and i admit to nothing then 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 i'm not guilty i'm not guilty even if i get convicted i'm still not guilty because i never confessed we'll see that (laughs) so annoying hey next time we have a transcript like that we should do back and forth we definitely should i didn't think about that (laughs) we were we were talking about something like that recently that's why (laughs) Clearly, Harold was unwilling to cooperate with authorities, even when presented with evidence that clearly showed his guilt. Harold Shipman's trial would begin on October 5th, 1999. Harold's defense attorney, Nicola Davies, would begin the trial by asking that it be halted. She claimed that Harold could not receive a fair trial because of the poor, quote, inaccurate, misleading, end quote, coverage of the case. The prosecution, Mr. Henriquez, responded that the reports on the case had actually been beneficial as they helped families with elderly loved ones that had passed get closure and answers. Mm-hmm. In the second attempt, Ms. Davies asked that the court hold three separate trials as Kathleen Grundy's death had an alleged motive and the others did not. 
The prosecution argued that since the cases were all related, they should all be in the same trial. I think so. I I mean, I kind of, they're all with the same MO. Yeah. I mean, other than the motive. Yeah. Yeah. The money. Like, is the, the money the, is yeah, the, the thing. factor. The third time around, Miss Davies shocked the counselors and the whole court with her new proposal. Evidence referred to in Volume 8 be thrown out. Volume 8 had detailed how Harold had gotten morphine from 28 different patient records, many of whom had died. It also showed that Harold was continuing to fill the scripts after the patient's deaths and allegedly kept the drugs for his own use. So he was also using it? Lastly, Volume 8 suggested that Harold prescribed very strong opioids to many patients that did not need them. So yeah, it seems like he was still abusing drugs. So what, do you remember that one case we did where people were, where was it, um, oh my goodness, who was drinking a lot and forcing yeah, the um, other, the other, Gilbert, Paul Jordan, Paul Jordan, Gilbert, I think Gilbert, Gilbert Paul Jordan, Paul Jordan, name, yeah. that it kind of, do you think it's kind of one of those where like he wants to get really fucked up and high and stuff and then he wants to force other people to get fucked up and high? That's actually a good point. It might be. It might yeah. be, like, remembering his mom in a sick way. Like, remember oh, the morphine so with his mom. And because they're little ladies, most of them. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Putting them out of their misery. Oh, that's awful. So, again, those were the three different proposals that the defense had pl- kind of immediately when court started. She was like, hold on, let me give you, like, three different options for how we're going to do this. Yeah. Whatever. After considering the defense's three proposals, Mr. Justice Forbes explained why he would be denying each one. <laughs> The trial would go on, with Harold being held on 15 murder charges and Volume 8 remaining in evidence. The following Monday, October 11th, 1999, the jury would be gathered and the trial would resume. The main prosecutor, Richard Henriquez, would state about the victims, quote, None of those buried nor indeed cremated were prescribed morphine nor diamorphine. All of them died most unexpectedly. All of them had seen Dr. Shipman on the day of their death. He would also, end quote, He would also dismiss the possibility of euthanasia or mercy killing as none of the patients were terminally ill. Mm -hmm. He would suggest that Harold liked what he was doing for a while, stating, quote, He was exercising the ultimate power of controlling life and death and repeated the act so often he must have found the drama of taking life to his taste. That's fucking gross. Angela Woodruff would testify for the prosecution. Again, this is Kathleen's daughter. She would recall a conversation that her and Harold had after her mother's death. Quote, exactly what he said was difficult to remember. It's very hazy because I was very, very upset. Dr. Shipman said he had been my mother, been with my mother on the morning of her death. He said he had seen her at home, end quote. She was unable to recall why Harold was at the home in the first place. Among other witnesses testifying, an expert witness called Dr. John Rutherford was brought to the stand. He described the grueling task of testing tissue samples and discovered that Kathleen's fingerprints were nowhere on the will, suggesting she had never touched it. Like, duh. Duh. In the second week of the trial, Harold's former colleagues were called. Nurse Marion Gildkreis would take the stand and immediately begin crying. Mm. She stated that during a conversation with Harold, he would tell her, quote, I read, I read thrillers and on the evidence they have, I would have me guilty. The only thing I did wrong was not having her cremated. If I had had her cremated, I wouldn't be having all this trouble, end quote. All this trouble. Oh, it's troubling for you to still be alive. Absolutely. Everybody's bothering me. Seriously. Another witness recalled Harold stating about Kathleen's death, quote, If I could bring her back, I would say, look at all the trouble it's caused. I was going to say I didn't want the money, but because of all this trouble, I will have it, end quote. 
I was I gonna went, say I didn't really care about the money, but this is just so much trouble. I deserve so it. I went through all of this trouble. I all of the it. trouble to get this money. It's disgusting. At this point in the trial, it was becoming abundantly clear that Harold was responsible for the deaths of dozens of people. 77-year-old Lizzie Adams would be one of these victims. Lizzie was known for her love of dancing with her partner, William Catlow, who would stop by to visit Lizzie on the day of her death. Mm. When he arrived, William would come across Harold examining Lizzie's bountiful collection of porcelains and crystal. In the next room, Lizzie's lifeless body. What? William rushed to Lizzie, Lizzie's aid, stating to the court about this, quote, I just burst past him. She felt warm. I said, I can feel her pulse, end quote. William would then testify that Harold would respond to this by stating, quote, no, that's yours. I will cancel the ambulance, end quote. However, telephone records would later indicate that Harold did not call to cancel the ambulance, as a call was never placed to them in the first place. What? Oh my gosh, this is madness. Madness. And he's just, like, he's hanging just about. looking at her fucking collectibles. Looking at her, yeah. Probably, probably planning on stealing them. Sounds like a motive to me. In another case of Nora Natal, her son Anthony would testify that he left his mother alone on the date of her death for just 20 minutes. He would come home to find Harold leaving their home in a hurry. Anthony would testify, quote, I asked him what was wrong. He said, I have rung an ambulance for her, end quote. <laughs> but I'm a doctor and I'm leaving. Bye. Anthony stated that he ran into the house and to his mother and began cr- to try to wake her, trying to try to wake her. Shortly after this, Harold would enter the home yet again, touch Nora's neck, and state, quote, I'm sorry, she is gone, end quote. Soon after her death, Nora's sister went to Harold's office to look through her medical records, hoping to find some answers. Seemingly annoyed, Harold would say to his staff about this, quote, I knew it would happen. I told you it would happen, end quote. Like, I told you her family was going to come poking around. <laughs> yeah, because they want to know why their fucking family member died. Trouble that they're causing. Like, they're causing it's like his favorite words. Trouble. Harold would quickly make up some story about how Nora called before her death, stating that she was sick, and Harold just happened to be nearby her home when he was page regarding the matter. <laughs> like, once phone records proved his story wrong, however, Harold quickly changed his story stupid like you're like you can't just explain everything away when the evidence is clear as day not a smart man this was not the only story harold was making up to save his own ass as again he had been caught lying about the reason he was at kathleen grundy's home in the first place he stated he had been there to collect blood samples for a study he was doing on aging like i said earlier when questioned on what happened to the samples harold stated (laughs) that they had gone for analysis oh they're just gone they're just gone Although he thought he was fooling everybody, Harold was noted as lying once again when the prosecution stated that there was indeed no study on aging anywhere in his records. Like, we looked through all of your shit, no study on aging. No study on aging. After being informed of this, Harold suddenly remembered what had actually happened to the samples. (laughs) Oh my god, this guy is so bad. He's, like, irritating. He sounds like a child. He does. He He said he had gotten back to his office and put the samples under a big pile of notes. And since they didn't get filed right away, they were no longer useful, so he just tossed them away. Yeah. They, yeah, they got lost somewhere. I don't know. Somebody might have taken them. I don't know. Like, what? You don't take samples immediately to the lab? Right. Really? That's no. weird. Okay. He, he comes home and just, like, throws them on the floor, yeah. or, like, in his fridge, or, yeah. like, yeah. There was no samples. <laughs> just switch the samples. There was no samples. 59-year-old Jean Lilly would also fall victim to Harold's heinous crimes. Her husband, Albert Lilly, would testify during the trial as well. Quote, he said, I have been with your wife for quite a while now, trying to persuade her to go to the hospital, but she won't go. 
the husband was out of the house during this time, yeah. obviously. Quote, I was going to come home later and have a word with you and your wife, and I was too late. I said, what do you mean too late? He said, you are not listening to me carefully, end quote. It seemed as though Harold was trying to get Albert to guess what had happened to his wife. Like, he was just going to go with that? Like, he's like, I'm not going to tell you that she's dead. Like, I want him to, like, come like, to oh, the realization and, like, guess that she's, like, not okay. So he tried to, like, be, he was like, oh, just be smarter about it. Yeah, Be smarter about it, your wife's dead, duh. Yeah. God, that's awful. How Disgusting. do you treat people like that? Disgusting. 73-year-old Winnie Miller's daughter would get a similar phone call when she became another victim of Harold's. I mentioned her a second ago. Her daughter Kathleen would also testify, quote, He said, Do you realize that your mother has been suffering from chest pains? And I said, No. He said, She called this morning, and I came to see her, and she refused treatment. So I says, Well, I'll be up as soon as I can. He says, No, no, there's no need for that. So I said, Has she gone to the hospital? And he said, There's no point in sending her to the hospital. And I just went silent then, and he didn't say anything neither. And then I just realized what he was not saying. And I said, do you mean my mother's dead? He says, I see you understand, end quote. Why wouldn't he say it, though? He wants them to come to the conclusion? Why? I don't know. It's like some weird fucking game like or something. Like it's a game. Yeah, it's like, or maybe if they're like, oh, did she have a stroke? He'd be like, yep, mm-hmm, that's oh, exactly yep, what happened. Yep, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. I, I was also thinking that, too. Like, if they suggest that something was wrong, mm-hmm. you can oh, just yeah, say. Oh, yeah, she said her head was hurting. Oh, she yeah. had a heart attack? Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Or even the fact that he was like, you don't know that your mother has heart problems? What yeah. kind of daughter are yeah. you? <laughs> so rad. Harold was known as being extremely rude to one of his neighbors by the name of Gloria Ellis, and this is known as being part of his downfall. Gloria had actually witnessed Harold walking into Winnie Miller's home just hours before her death. Harold would leave and return later. Detective Chief Inspector would explain about this second visit, quote, a neighbor, talking about Gloria, quote, tea time, gets a knock on the door from Dr. Shipman saying he's come to see Winifred Miller. He can see her in a chair and he thinks she's dead. They go into the house, and again, they find Winifred Miller dead in a chair, end quote. Him and the neighbor? Yeah, so Harold had gone to Gloria's home to let her know that when he arrived to see her neighbor, he thought she may be dead, and he asked her to go with him to check. I don't know if he was like, I need a fucking second opinion alibi. An alibi, yeah. When Gloria asked him, quote, you were here before, weren't you? End quote. (gasps) Harold didn't answer her. He goes, you have a heart problem, too. Yeah. (laughs) Let me treat you. Yeah, Gloria then asked him, quote, has Winnie had a stroke? End quote. And Harold responded very irritably, quote, you stupid girl. End quote. God, this guy is a winner, He's huh? just the worst. He's just a peach. On the contrary, Gloria was very smart and had documented the exact times that Harold had arrived at the home. Hell yeah. During her testimony, she made the court chuckle when she claimed to have been surprised when she learned that Harold was a doctor, stating, quote, I thought he was an insurance man. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> I thought he was a car salesman. Yeah. <laughs> it's a sleazeball. 63-year-old Ivy Lomas, another victim of Harold's, would be the only one who died in his office. Harold would later show his lack of empathy when Detective Sergeant Philip Reed told the court that he had gone to the doctor's office to locate Ivy's next of kin, stating, quote, He was laughing. He said he considered her such a nuisance that he was having part of the seating area permanently reserved for Ivy with a plaque to the effect, seat permanently reserved for Ivy Lomas, end quote. What an ass. Like, she showed up too many times at his office and bugged him when she was alive. He's a... You're a doctor. Thank you. (laughs) 
You're a fucking doctor. If you don't want to do it, then go, then fucking quit. Be the undertaker. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to be a doctor. Nobody's e- making you do this. Yeah, exactly. Even worse, Harold would go on to tell the then officer as he left the room that Ivy, quote, could have taken her last breath, end quote. Yet he made no effort to attempt CPR. Instead, he left her alone while he was treating other patients. <gasps> Medical like, left ex- her alone to, like, like in die a, in by a room. Yeah. Oh, my God. Medical expert for the defense, Dr. Grenville, would explain to the court, quote, this was a medical emergency. I would have given my entire attention to this particular patient, end quote. Harold had given Ivy a lethal dose of morphine. It's true. Like, even if he was the perpetrator of giving her the morphine, her body shutting down and all that other shit would have been a medical emergency. Absolutely. So, like, even if he didn't claim to know what was going on, or he claimed not to know what was going on, the person having these symptoms and side effects clearly needed your utmost attention. Absolutely. Wow. During the trial, Harold claimed that he never carried morphine at his office or on his person, so he couldn't have been the perpetrator. I never carry it in I my just pocket. I never carry that. Oh, okay, you're I just go. carry it in my hand. Yeah. <laughs> I don't carry it in my pocket. I put it in my shoe. There is a lot of uh, direct quotes on the internet that you can find from the court proceedings, but all in all, it was like a super long, grueling trial. There's mm-hmm. a lot of like pretty much essentially like line by line quotes. Yeah. Judge Forbes took two weeks to dissect the evidence presented by both parties and stated at the end of the trial, quote, The allegations could not be more serious. A doctor accused of murdering 15 patients. You will have heard evidence which may have aroused feelings of anger, strong disapproval, disgust, profound dismay, or deep sympathy, end quote. On January 31st of the year 2000, the foreman declared all of the jury's verdicts unanimous, finding Harold Shipman guilty on 15 counts of murder and guilty on one count of forgery. Do you do you know how many, or what the statistics are, I wonder, for a bench trial in the UK versus the US? I actually don't. Somebody Google that and let us know. Or, or we could do a mental breakdown or something. That'd that's be cool. true. That, <gasps> different court proceedings That'd be cool. in different countries. So Harold was known as showing no signs of emotion while the verdict was read. Harold's wife, Primrose, was also present for the verdict, wearing all black and remaining stoic the entire time. Their two children were there as well. Judge Forbes addressed Harold, quote, You have finally been brought to justice by the verdict of this jury. I have no doubt whatsoever that these are all true verdicts. The time has now come for me to pass sentence upon you for these wicked, wicked crimes. Each of your victims was your patient. You murdered each and every one of your victims by a calculated and cold-blooded perversion of your medical skills for your own evil and wicked purposes. You took advantage of and grossly abused their trust. You were, after all, each victim's doctor. I have little doubt that each of your victims smiled and thanked you as she submitted to your deadly ministrations, end quote. Oh, God. <sighs> it's awful. It is. Like, it, they come to you for help. You know, I mean, yeah. that's, they're, that's your job is to help these people. And I'm sure as soon as they, oh, let me give you something to ease that, or this is just to relax you. And people are thinking, thank God I am in the hands of a man who was going to take care of me. And then they die. With this, Judge Forbes sentenced Harold Shipman to 15 life sentences and four years on top for forgery. Nice. Judge Forbes was so upset about this case, in fact, that he broke a rule which would usually state that he write the Home Secretary about his recommendations of sentencing length. Quote, In the ordinary way, I would not do this in open court, but in your case, I am satisfied. Justice demands that I make my views known at the conclusion of this trial. My recommendation will be that you spend the remainder of your days in prison. End quote. The trial lasted a total of 57 days. 57? That's a lot. Almost three months, or two months, excuse me. So since we did not get a chance to explain each murder, 
I want to list all of the victims that Harold got charged with. Mm -hmm. There will be some repeats that I've mentioned, but just to give all the victims a name. Mm -hmm. So we have Marie West, Irene Turner, Lizzie Adams, Jean Lilly, Ivy Lomas, Muriel Grimshaw, Marie Quinn, Kathleen Wagstaff, Bianca Pomfret, Pomfret, Nora Natal, Pamela Hiller, Maureen Ward, Winifred Meller, Joan Melia, and Kathleen Grundy. Mm. Which is, like, awful. Like, again, I always say, like, the amount of time it takes to, like, say those names. I know, and it's, like, it's it can be hugely impactful, for mm-hmm. sure, to say every single one. For sure. There is some speculation that the large amount of drugs that Harold prescribed to nobody back in 1975 were actually used to kill many patients and not for himself, like everyone thought. This is just a little aftermath. Mm-hmm. A clinical audit from the Department of Health actually estimates Harold's responsibility for the death of at least 260 or 236 patients over oh a 24-year time frame. Victims? Like, de- like deaths? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Professor Richard ba- Baker examined the number and patterns of deaths in Harold's practice, and it showed significant increases in death rates in elderly patients like during his time there. Do you know if it was mostly women? It didn't say. Uh, yeah, it was mostly women, uh, women. elderly women. Okay. So remember that um, interview that Harold did about how he wanted to help the mental health community and mm-hmm. all that jazz? Yeah, so that was actually played again years later on The Tonight Show with Trevor McDonald. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, just like, oh, by the way, listen to this piece of shit, like, talking about how he's going to help people, and then yeah. he didn't. The Shipman inquiry would later blame the Greater Manchester Police for inadequate inadequate work efforts and exper- inexperienced officers when the case was originally opened. Well, he had already been fined for what like a malpractice type issue right yeah so and i mean and it's like this guy has priors even if it's not violent right there's something going on here yeah capable of something more detectives working the case would later speculate that harold may have wanted to get caught which is why he gave up the typewriter so easily and used a traceable drug to kill people no i think he's just arrogant i think so too i think he just thinks it doesn't matter i mean there's that that isabella guzman girl that well she's severely mentally ill but she tried to say that she wasn't who she was and like no we had we just fingerprinted you we know you're isabella and she's like no i'm not my name's stephanie or whatever and it's like she have did no She was on schizophrenia spectrum, um, or has since been diagnosed on the schizophrenia spectrum, but she murdered her mother. She stabbed her like 57 times behind a closed door. Then she ran from the house. They couldn't find her for like 24 hours. They found her in a parking garage. And then at this point she was like, I'm a homeless transient girl who has Mm. no DID though. But she did murder her mom in a a, a fit. There's definitely psychosis there for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So just after... Just over three years after sentencing, on January 13th, 2004, Dr. Harold Shipman was discovered at Wakefield Prison at 6 a.m. hanging in his prison (gasps) cell. He was 57 years old. I did not see that coming. (laughs) Here I am, like, gabbing on about some other case. Yeah. I did not see that coming. Yeah, it was a wake-up call. I mean, for only three years in. His death actually opened an investigation on how he was able to commit suicide in his in his cell yeah. as this is a common thing for death row inmates to attempt unfortunately mm-hmm. although he was on suicide watch at the first prison he was sent to this was the second prison and the suicide watch did not continue with the move wow a spokeswoman from wakefield prison stated about this quote he was showing no signs whatsoever of pre-suicidal behavior at all end quote well i wonder if i mean things like a move can trigger certain responses i bet he True. felt like any connections that he had made Probably, you know, I mean, not that they're hanging out like it's, yeah, like yeah, it's the still... Boy Scouts, but you know, it's 
it's still you get used to the the staff and the COs and even yeah. just some of the other inmates and you feel maybe like established then you get moved and For it's sure. like well I don't know anybody here so you know fuck this yeah victims families were noted as being very upset about Harold's death as they felt cheated knowing that he would never confess and that he kind of got the easy way out yeah. well again and I'm not saying that you know it's an it's unfortunate either way but that arrogance... Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, like, I'm not going to let you kill me. Yeah. You don't kill me, I kill me. Yeah. And that's, I'm not fucking sitting here until I die. Like, which, that's probably where it came from. Yeah. I, was, I mean, you know, that sounds harsh to say. It but does. it's... I mean, some, some people do that. Mm-hmm. That it's, I mean, Epstein, which some people don't agree with. Yeah. They think <laughs> it's a conspiracy. I don't even know the fucking story. Home Secretary David Blunkett would later admit that celebrating Harold's death was tempting, stating, quote... You wake up and you receive a call telling you Shipman has topped himself and you think, is it too early to open a bottle? And then you discover that everybody's very upset that he's done it. End quote. That is... That's harsh. Topped it. Topped. That I've never heard that topped term himself. before. Topped himself. I don't even know what that means. I guess it's well, slang for, obviously, yeah, suicide, but I don't know. That is some... I'm telling you, these Brits, they're witty. Get this fucking title. General Sir David Ramsbotham, who had formerly served as Her Majesty's Chief Inspector of Prisons, suggested that whole life sentencing should be replaced by indefinite sentencing in order to give some prisoners hope and hopefully reduce suicide in prison. That's interesting, though. I feel like that's fucked up, though. It's I like, feel, well, yeah. You're indefinitely sentenced. You don't know when you're going to get out. But then it's like, well, if I don't know when I'm going to get out or if I'm going to get out, why am I going to kill myself? Right. And I understand what the effort there is for. I get, I get is, the idea behind it. Yeah. Because it's that's horrible. still very interesting yeah, that that and, exists. Yeah. That, I mean, here definitely. in Texas, you know, they talk about... It's all it's all over the place. Permanent sentences. Permanent I'll say sentences. That. <laughs> Lastly, sentences. Harold's wife and children have never accepted that he was guilty, and Primrose oh. remained loyal to him even when he was behind bars. Wow. Yeah. I don't think I could do that. I, I don't think, think I could either. I'd be like, I could do that. If the shoe fits. I mean, shit. <laughs> if the shoe fits. So it is suspected that he had a personality disorder, maybe a couple different ones. I know we had like the grandiose sense of self that we were talking about earlier. Um, I want to say even like PTSD from his mom's death. Yeah. Again, we're not excusing any of the behavior, just trying to find a reason for it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's the that's the case. I think PTSD totally fits with that. You know, we and again, when we were talking about how terrible of a liar he is, and yeah. I said, he sounds like a child. Well, that has to be and they, the, some people that go through PTSD also go through some type of age regression as mm-hmm. well to re- to remain in that nostalgic feeling and i wonder if that doesn't give him some kind of an adrenaline type rush thinking about what you just opened my eyes to something go ahead that's you know maybe there's this that's where that comes from a little bit is like i i i create these problems right this yeah. trouble he's talking about um but i'm only you know i'm going to participate in, in a very childlike way and that I don't know. Maybe yeah, give no, him a little I, bit of that. I feeling. agree. I think that. I mean, I think there's a, a lot of shit going on, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's just an awful case, like through and through. And like, I I always say things like this. It's like imagine living like 81 fucking years, and then some ass wipe takes you off this earth. Like, yeah, you lived 81 fucking years. I mean, right. he had a bunch of other victims that were in their like late 60s to 80s, and but still, God, it's awful. You it's live like, your whole life just for that to happen. Yeah. It's really unfortunate. It's so sad. Yeah, I mean, this guy's been at the top of my list for a while, yeah. and I finally sat down and did the research, but I hope that the UK is 
at least, I don't want to say happy, but like, you know, <laughs> appreciative that we did yeah. a case for them. Cause I know Talk we have about so many listeners. Stain in your, in your area. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you guys for joining us and listening. And if you have any suggestions, keep sending them yes. our way. We'll be back next week with our cases. And do you have anything else? No, it was a really good, that was a good episode. Thanks. Yeah. Okay, we'll All see right. you guys later. Love you. Bye. Bye. It's no secret that we value your mental health. So we are thrilled to announce that we are sponsored by BetterHelp to support you. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp, you can access a network of over 30,000 licensed therapists with a wide range of specialties and be linked with the perfect match. Whether it's via text, chat, or video call, you can talk to your therapist when it works for you. When it comes to your mental health, BetterHelp is a convenient and affordable option for therapy. Get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash DAKpod. That's BetterHelp slash DAKpod for 10% off your first month.